Good morning, everybody. Morning, man, that was that was good. That was soulful. Morning, so good to be here. I uh, I'm I'm so glad to see your smiling faces. It's awesome. I love it when we gather in this place. Um, I really even more so love not just when we gather, but I love when when the people of God do what God tells them to do, and they go out and do it, and then they they see victory in their own life, and then because of their obedience that they experience victory, that other people experience victory. Really, that's what this whole series has been about. It's, it's not a matter of a personal journey. It's, it's a matter of what happens when someone f- fully commits their life to Jesus. What happens when somebody does that and how does it impact the world? And how does it impact the world? What we said thus far is save people or sent people. You see this throughout the, the New Testament. You see that save people or sent people. You see that where people start is not where they finish. They start in a certain place and God does this amazing work. And as God changes in on the inside, he changes the way they think. He changes the way they feel. He changes their heart and he puts a different set of values within them. And what we talked about last week is these values become the way. Or as the early church was known as the way, the way of Jesus or the way of living like Jesus, and the way that people would be identified is by certain characteristics, that no longer would they just be thinking about themselves. Instead, they looked beyond themselves just supernaturally. They looked beyond themselves to where as soon as they received Jesus, they were looking for other people who needed Jesus. Like it just happened. But where they started is not where they finished, remarkably so. I want to open up today's message with the story. I grew up in the Midwest and there's not a whole lot to do in the Midwest um, unless you want to look at rows of corn or soybeans and then you can do that all day long and never look at another, like never look at the same farm again. It's just mild. It's like so much worse than pine trees, to be honest with you. It's just, it's just rows and rows and rows. And if you turn the corner, it's just looking at the rows from another angle. It's like everywhere. So we try and find creative things to do there. Uh, we did anyway when I lived there. And one of the things that was very common there, but it's not as common here, is car shows. Anybody ever been to a car show? Anyone? So car shows, and they were kind of fun for us. Marla's dad has an old car, so we would be some of the cool ones. We'd get in his 60 Fairlane, and it was like, it was big enough for like like two like large families to fit in and not touch each other. I mean, the car was so big. The back dash was like the same size as like my whole back seat. It was huge. Just this big boxy car, but it was beautiful. Beautiful machine, 1960. So we would go into these car shows and it was great because you have people coming from just literally all of the surrounding states and they would just gather upon this place. And something that really confused me about these car shows is there'd be cars like ours where we would drive up and the car was nice, but not like spotless, but we would go up and we'd pull up and it'd be kind of neat and we'd open up the doors and open the hood and the trunk and go look at our car. And yet the thing that was really confusing to me is there'd be people who would pull up in like a beautiful truck with a covered trailer, like they would motorize and the, the back would fall out or it would just like be motorized and go down. And then they would literally not even drive. They would push this car out of the back of the trailer and they would put this car into the spot where it's going to be shown. Then they would pull the trailer up just a little bit and then 
and they would close up the back hatch. They would take that truck and trailer and move it away. And it would just be kind of confusing, not as confusing as this. Oftentimes what they would do is because it was most likely the nicest car there. This car would sit there and it would be just simply beautiful. But they would usually start it with this. They would start the car up probably just to make sure that everybody knows that the car is legit and actually runs. And they would start it up and it'd be like barely running, like headers and all that other car stuff that I don't understand, but it would sound amazing. You just knew that if this car were to go forward, it could go like 200 miles an hour, but it would just sit there and they would have that thing in, in neutral and he'd be revving it up and you'd be like, whoa, that's really amazing. People would flock from all around and they'd ooh and on. Oh, oh my goodness, what does he have in there? And it's just, it's this. And he's like, oh man, I've just never seen something so beautiful. And then about that, about that time, then he would just turn the ignition off. He would open the doors, pop the hood, lift the trunk, and on with the car show. And I would just see, I would just be really mesmerized. Hey, it's an amazing car, but I'm like, like it's, something's missing. Like the car is meant to do something more than just be pushed out of the back of a covered trailer and then just sit there in a spot and just to rev up to choose or just to show everybody that it is legitimately a car and that it could go fast if it wanted to. But something just seemed right when the car would then be shut off and then the trailer would be removed and it would just sit there like everything else. Like something just didn't make sense. It's such a picture of the church because we can have an existence of as the body of Christ and just come into this place and woo, hoot and holler and make a lot of noise and not make a difference. We can just come into this place and sing amazing Jesus songs and we can hallelujah, whatever we do around here. We can do all these different things. We can just go crazy. We can have all of this fun. But if we don't gather and then scatter to share the gospel, we're not doing it right. The statement for that is this. If our church gathers without scattering to share Jesus, we're just making a lot of noise and we're not making a difference. We're just making a lot of noise. Like there's something so compelling about the early church that I want us to get. Something so compelling, I literally have goosebumps because I believe it so much that we weren't just left on planet earth to live out the rest of our days singing a bunch of Jesus songs. We were left here on planet earth to be a plan of redemption and restoration for the rest of the world. We can't just settle anymore for making a lot of noise. We can't. We have to leave the place that we started and to go and do the things, even if they're risky, to go do the things that God wants us to do. That's what we see in the life of Saul. We introduced him last week. Saul is really an incredible person in the Bible. He, I think, is the second most influential person ever to walk on planet Earth outside of Jesus himself. The, uh, Saul, later, be known, later to be known as the Apostle Paul, just amazing historical figure. So smart. He had all the facts of the law down. And then God ordained this moment where he would be stricken blind. And as he was blind, it would only show, his physical blindness would only show that he's actually spiritually blind. And because of him being spiritually blind, and now he had to be literally go physically, to be physically blinded so he could have eyes to see. Not just eyes to see, but really a heart to see and a mind to see. And, and his whole value system changed. And, and what we're going to see about him, piggybacking on last week going into this week, is, is he starts somewhere, but yet he goes on a journey for God. 
And we're supposed to do much of the same thing. Heard this story this week, and I think, uh, I, I believe firmly this will relay a valuable message for us. And I want to tell you the story of Roger. And what we see in Roger's life is very common in, in our lives as Christians. Because you can be saved, you can have received the gospel according to Jesus and understand you could have the forgiveness of your sins, you could be redeemed, you could have his blood as an atonement for your sins, you could have all of those things, but yet still not grow in your faith. And the New Testament uses the word sanctification, meaning set apart. We live the rest of our life being more and more and more set apart for God's work. But Roger's story is interesting because Roger found out that he, was, um, that he had a disease and it was a disease that affected his retina. And when he, he received this news, he found out that he was going to be blind. Like, assuredly, doctors, you're going to be blind. Well, by the time he was 40, he was completely blind. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Living your life, being able to see a doctor going in. And I've been to some scary doctor's appointments, but going in, he says, yeah, I've got bad news, your retina, it's, it's, it's all jacked up. And actually, you're going to be blind. You're going to be blind early in your life. So Roger lived some of his life like that, but then he started to hear about some things that were happening over in Europe, I believe. And there was this creation, uh, it was amazing, it was called the bionic eye. You can look it up later. This, this medical thing called the bionic eye, and they literally would implant this thing into someone's retina, imagine that, into someone's retina. And then after they implant this into a retina, then it transmits a signal to glasses. They, they look like a, a mishmash between Oakley's and like vir and virtual reality glasses. It's kind of funky and weird. But so then he had the procedure done where they implanted these things into his retina and then the retina would then send a signal to the glasses. And then because of that, then they would be able to gather enough light for him to be able to see images again. But because his body was was already used to being blind. His, literally, his mind had to be retrained on how to see. So though he was blind and he could see, he still had to have the ability for his mind to be rewired, if you will, with his retina so he would be able to interpret what he sees. You and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, we have to go into a place where we have our minds renewed so God shows us so it shows us things through, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit so we can understand what we see. So we can understand what we see because what we see is not always what's happening. Let's go into our passage. Acts 9, starting in verse 19. This message literally is going to be divided up, not equally, because I'm going to spend more time intentionally on the first part of this. But this is going to be broken up into two different things. And we can, if you're going to categorize it, you could categorize the first one as Damascus. And then you could categorize the second part, which we're going to get to in a bit, Jerusalem. And this is what Saul does. So let's start in verse 19. He got up, that's Saul. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Remember, he was most likely hangry, hadn't eaten in a couple days, had some issues. Now he regains his strength and he's, he's ready to go do his thing. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God at once. Verse 20, it's like, there's no delay. I told you this a couple weeks ago. There's no delay. Sent people or saved people and saved people or sent people. Like it's just, it happens all at the same time. So at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. 
As those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? So there's some rumors already swirling that the reason why Saul is there is because what he used to do. But he had already left what he had started and now he's on a new journey with God. But yet they're still believing. He's like, isn't he the guy who throws Christians in jail? Like, I'm pretty sure this is the guy. Verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan day and night. They, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through the opening in the wall. They save his life. They save his life. So he, he goes in there into Damascus. By the way, it's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world, still inhabited today. So he goes into this, into this city and some things become important about this city. Some people say, well, why would he go into Damascus? In Damascus, they would speak two languages at least, predominantly. They would speak uh, Aramaic, which would be the language of Jesus, but also they would speak Greek. So by Saul going into Damascus and him being able to go and share the gospel with, these, with both of these people groups, then the gospel would be able to go out from this city center and to reach more people more quickly. It's amazing. So he goes into Damascus, a strategic city. The city is also known as the community's place of exile. And this is, we know this to be true because in Amos 5, verse 27, got to give Amos some love. We never talk about him. Like he's, the, he's the, the minor prophet in the Old Testament that gets neglected a lot. This is what it says in Amos 5, 27. He says, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. So this is God speaking to God's people at the time, says the Lord whose name is God Almighty. So he was sending them, this is approximately 700 years before what we're reading in Acts 9. So this had become a city or a community of exile. And God told us this, should be no surprise, through the ministry of Amos. So now Saul goes into, into Damascus and he's teaching them about the Messiah because that's the thing that they would connect with the most because they are Jews. Jews were living in an expectation that the Messiah would come. The Old Testament pointed, there's, there's just so many different prophecies saying the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah, all sorts of prophecies. So they would have this expectation that the Messiah was coming, but they missed Jesus. They missed it. So now Saul is using the ministry of Jesus and talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the risen one. He's the one that we've expected. He's the anointed one. You missed it. But you can still have faith in him. Justo Gonzalez, I'm sure I said that wrong. He said this about this particular passage. Some of you who speak Spanish would be able to correct me. You can later. This is what he says. Paul was not preaching a new religion, but rather a fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. His message was not that Israel had been abandoned by God, but instead the resurrection of Jesus has brought in the age of the Messiah. And now Gentiles were able to join the people of God. So this is what Gonzalez 
I got that part right, said about this particular passage. He says that Paul is, Saul in this time is not preaching a new religion at this point, or like he's not, he's not trying to say, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to neglect these rules of Judaism. Now you need to form your own rules of Christianity. Instead, he was saying something completely different. He says, no, 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 the righteous will live by faith. That's, what he, that's kind of stuff he would say. What? Yeah, the righteous live by faith. Those who have been made right by God live by faith in God. That's what they do. And instead of all the 613 laws of the Old Testament, he says, no, 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 we're not trying to create a, a new religion of a bunch of new laws. He says, no, no, no I'm gonna, we're just going to go back to what Jesus said. And Jesus made it very simple. He says, there's the first and second greatest commandment, love God and love others. And then just love one another as you would love yourself. It's like, it's not a new religion. It's a new way of life because it was called the way. So it's a new way of life, a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of believing, new way of sharing, new way of opening your life up to someone else. I want to give you a a parallel passage with this one. And if you would hold your place in Acts 9, because we're going to go back here in just a moment. I want to, we're going to look at the word proving in just a couple of minutes. But I, I want you to go to the right in your Bible to Galatians 1, if you have a Bible, that is. Galatians 1. And this is a parallel passage to what we just read. But there's an intricate detail that Saul left out in, in Acts 9 that he adds into Galatians 1. The reason being, it's very simple, because the storyline in Acts is not just Saul's story. It's the story of what God did with a certain group of people called the church. It's what God did when people obeyed him. It's what God did by restoring souls and redeeming families and thousands were being added to the number of the church daily, it says. The world was being changed. But in Galatians 1, there's an intricate detail. I want to give you the context of it because in Galatians 1, uh, what what we're jumping into is Saul is giving, giving them an explanation of his credentials. For some reason they didn't believe that he was credible. So he gives his credentials in Galatians 1. I'm going to start in verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Of course they had. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. He's like, that's the person I was. Here's the transition, verse 15. But when God, like, this is my story. Like, stop here for just a moment. This is my story. And if you've given your life to Jesus, this is your story. It's like, this is the person that I was, but when God. Like for me, I lived the better part of 21 years of my life, living on my terms, doing what I wanted to do, seeking my, my own way of life. But when God showed up in my life and he initiated faith in me at the, age of 20, at the age of 21, my life has been drastically different, not perfect, mind you, but drastically different from that moment on. So now I have lived, I've lived more years saved than I have unsaved. 21 years of lostness. So if I were to share my story with you, it wouldn't be that unfamiliar with what we just read from Saul. Saul says, you know that the way, my former way of life, I was so entrenched in Judaism. That's the person I was. That's the person I was on my, my, own, my own way of thinking, my own way of living, my own way of believing, believing. But here's the transition. But when God, who set me apart from birth 
And he made me, he, he called me by his grace. He was pleased to dwell. He was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I do not consult any man, that's what he says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So Arabia is not mentioned in Acts 9. Again, Acts 9 is a storyline of the early church. It's what God did when people fairly surrendered to him. But yet now, Saul adds this little bit. And just so you know, geographically what's happening, there's Damascus. And then outside of Damascus on, in this direction is Arabia. Do you know what's in Arabia? Nothing. It's about the same thing that's there now. Nothing. It's like a whole bunch of desert, whole bunch of nothingness. What Saul says, and he teaches us a valuable thing, and I, I actually said this to you last year, but I'm, now I'm going to reintroduce it because it's something that we have to remember as Christians. It's a matter of being with God before doing for God. It's a matter of being with God before doing for God. It's a matter of being with God before doing for God. You see, he goes into Arabia. He follows in the footsteps of John the Baptist before John the Baptist started his ministry. He went off into the desert, into a solitary place in the desert. Jesus, at the beginning of his earthly ministry in Matthew 4, he also started and he withdrew to a lonely place. And that's when he was tempted by Satan. You can read it yourself, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. We also know that, that Jesus, right after he fed the 5,000, like he was just tired. So in that moment, he was just exhausted from doing so much good ministry that he withdrew to a solitary place to get away from the crowds because he knew that there was such a value of being with his father rather than just simply doing for the father. We also see this in other aspects and it's believed the theologians believe that the reason why Saul went out into Arabia is he was following in the, in the footsteps of people like Moses who spent much of his ministry off in the desert. So maybe following in their footsteps, maybe just the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus also sought solitude in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his betrayal. I've been there. I've, I've been there in that place and I've stood on the Mount of Olives and the thing that separates the old city of Jerusalem and, and the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley. And I would tell you, if you ever have the opportunity to stand in that place, it will give you goosebumps because you know something holy and spiritual and incredible happened there. <laughs> what is in this place, the night before Jesus' betrayal, he escapes to a solitary place. Jesus had a pattern of pulling away from time to time. We also know that he, after receive the news of John the Baptist's death, that he withdrew to a lonely place to pray. So we can gather before making a big decision or recovering from a loss or beginning a new thing, a new ministry, a new opportunity, a new job, moving to a new city. And even in resting from a busy cycle of life and ministry, it's so important that we pull away from the crowds and we just spend time, just us and God in solitary places, just pulled away from people. I want to tell you, if I, if I don't spend time alone with God, I have nothing of value to add to you. I really don't. 
If I don't pull away and just have just some moments of quiet time with God, I have nothing to add to anyone else. As a matter of fact, if I haven't spent some time alone with Jesus and an open Bible and a journal and a pen, if I haven't spent some of that time in prayer and Bible study, if I haven't, then I see you as just simply taking away from me and I just don't even want to be around people. Some of you felt the same way. It's because you haven't fought for solitude. You haven't fought for the silence. Jesus withdrew in silence and solitude. John the Baptist withdrew in silence and solitude. And now Saul withdraws for silence and solitude. But I can tell you, there's, there's several things that get in the way of silence and solitude for us. A, you have no understanding of it most likely. You're like, that might be in the Bible, but I'm not really sure because all I was taught about was like Jonah and the whale and there was like some fire with Moses in Exodus 3 and like a burning bush and like Jesus healed a bunch of people and that's the stuff that we remember as kids and oftentimes what we don't teach our kids is, is the, the way of Jesus, the way of life that Jesus had and that's what we're supposed to model. That's what we're supposed to model. So there, some things get in the way and we're awful distracted people. Like that's not a newsflash. Is it like anybody surprised? Hey, I'm distracted. No. So there's, there's some things outside of ourselves that get in the way. Actually, this week I had the opportunity of going to a conference, a one-day conference in Alabama. And it was a four-hour drive. And I had, I had set out a certain, amount, a certain amount of hours in that drive where I just wanted to sit in silence. So I had to rent a truck. It was a beautiful truck, by the way, in case you wondered. I rented this truck. I didn't take Big Red because I didn't want to walk halfway there. And so I rented, I rented this truck and I just, I cracked the windows and I opened the back glass of the truck. I turn off the air conditioning. I turn off the radio. I turn my phone off and I put it off to the side. And I was just sitting there. I was just enjoying it. It was great. And I had designed, as when I got the truck, it didn't have a full tank of gas. I didn't even know they could do that, but it didn't have a full tank of gas. So I knew approximately how far I could go before getting gas. So I, I just determined I'm going to have this amount of time where I'm just in silence and solitude. And it was great. It wasn't easy, but it was great. But then as soon as I got out of the truck at the gas station and I put my card into the card reader, this screen just comes alive, like right, right at the gas pump. And it's like, I don't even know what it was. It was so annoying. It just kind of made me mad, to be honest with you. I was like, I've just had this time of silence of solitude. And there was like an interruption, like a spiritual interruption, like this thing just trying to clamor and get my attention and get my attention. And I looked at it and I was like, I, this is how weird it is. I literally looked at it. I'm like, I'm not going to pay attention because I don't want this ad to work on me. Like literally, that's what I was thinking in that moment. It's like, I am so much better than you, ad machine. But like, even when we try to do the right thing, things get in the way. And nothing gets in the way more in our day and age than the wealth of knowledge you have in your phone. Your phone. Like nothing gets in the way more than that. This is, this is the reason why when you go home and you're like, I just don't have time. It's because you go home and you have 15 minutes alone by yourself and you're scrolling through your Facebook feed or you're scrolling through Instagram or you're scrolling through Pinterest to find out what recipe you need to make or you're scrolling through and you're putting together your grocery list 
or you're, you're going through these things, things, some things that you have to do, some things you don't have to do, but we are awfully distracted people. We are. And, and sometimes those distractions are outside of ourselves. The good thing about the distractions outside of ourselves, we literally, we can shut the TV off. We can shut our phone off. We can silence Spotify. I know, earth shattering, right? We can, we can not open up YouTube and watch those videos over and over and over and over and over again. Like we can do that. We're, we, we have that ability. So that when it comes to the things that distract us outside of ourselves, we can make choices to silence those things for a time. What makes it even more difficult is the part that I left out on my drive. As I'm driving along, there's two things that I, I internal things that I found that get in the way of my silence and solitude. The first one I'll just call chatter and the second one control. The chatter was my mind was literally racing. My mind was like, hey, uh, uh, I, I, before I even left Dublin, I mean, I, before I even like really left the city of, of Dublin, I was like, oh yeah, you need to call Wayne and you need to this and make, call AJ and don't forget about this and don't forget about that and don't forget about that. It was like this, this, this chatter. It was like, oh, here's my to-do list and that's the way my mind works. It's like I always have a list of th- 10 things I need to do, 10 things I ought to do, 10 things that I've been needing to do for a long time but probably never gonna get to those. Like, that's just the way my mind works. Welcome to me. Like, that's, that's how it is. And it's just this internal chatter. And I literally had to go back every time that something would come to mind. I literally would have to say, no, this is a matter of spending time with Jesus. And it would be over and over and over. No, this, I got to the Danville exit. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm to the part where I know that I'm going to stop. And then I'm not going to be in silence and solitude. I remember looking up at the Danville sign. And, I, and it was just like, there was something else. And I'm like, no, like this is a time set apart to just breathe a little, pray a little, and just to see if I can hear God. That's the chatter. The second part was control. Because in the middle of this, this journey in this amazing truck, it had a lot of bells and whistles. And they had like a little screen that had a compass and, and a lot of other things I found. Because I was like wrestling with control. I was like, I mean, how often am I going to be able to be in like a brand new truck? Like at this rate, never. You know, I'm just like driving. Um, judging by my track record, uh, I'll never have a new truck. So I'm driving along and in my mind, I was like, oh, I want to see what that does. Like there's this control thing. It's like I should be doing something. So it's not the chatter part that's in my mind. Like you have to, you have to do this. You have to do this instead of it's control. So then I'm like wanting to touch the knobs and buttons and hit this and hit this. And every time I did it, I would literally have to remind myself, no, Chad, you blockhead. That's what I was thinking. I didn't say it, but I was like, no, this is a matter of time set apart to spend with Jesus. But I literally had to bring myself back to that every time. It's not easy. There are things outside on the out, from the outside and there are things on the inside, but you don't want to miss these times of silence and solitude. I love what Donald Whitney, a theologian, he said this. He said solitude, really he's a practitioner, not just a theologian. He's a practitioner of the way of Jesus. He said this, solitude is the spiritual discipline of voluntary, voluntarily and temporarily withdrawing to privacy for spiritual purposes what he means by this is when, when you have times of solitude and you fight for these, you're not going to f- just find them. It's like saying, well, I, I just need to find time. You have to fight for time because time, it just keeps clicking away, right? 
You have to fight for a solitude. You're not just gonna find it. You already have your life scheduled in a way where you don't have it most likely. So you have to reschedule and fight for it if you wanna have it. But when we do that, what we're doing is carving out this space for the other spiritual practices to happen. A time for all of a sudden when you fought for some, you fought for some silence and solitude, now you have a space to pray. Now you have a space to journal. Now you have space to read your Bible. Now you have space to do those other things that you seem like you couldn't do before. It's because silence and solitude creates a platform for the other spiritual purposes. I want to give you three Easy ways of doing this. Well, two are easy. Last one's not so easy. Because I, I realize, I, I see the, the blank stares and you're like, that's just not my world. Like, I've got a job. I've got chores. I've got kids. I've got kids. You know, like, I, I just know, like, this is grow. your list is growing. And you're like, how in the world is this going to happen? I want to give you hope with, with this. The first one is find the little solitudes you already have. On your drive into work, shut the radio off, shut your phone off, shut off Spotify, shut off Pandora. I know you're, I know you're paying for like the, you know, the, the elite Spotify and I realize that you're like, no, I paid for no commercials so I don't have to listen to, yeah, I know, but this is a matter of caring for your soul, you know? So just shut off Spotify, shut off your phone, use the little solitudes that you already have. Your life already has rhythms and you just need to use the rhythms that God has already given you. So it's the, it's the little things. It's going home at night instead of just binge watching whatever on Netflix is popular right now. I don't have Netflix. I'm not living in that world. Some of you could fill me in later. But it's like instead of just binge watching show after show after show and, and, you know, and going after all of these things, instead just turning the TV off for maybe one episode worth. Just shut it off for 30 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 15 minutes. It's not that interesting anyway. And you just create a little solitude in your life. The second thing I would say is go outside. There's just something about being indoors that closes in the imagination. And there's just something even about being indoors. I really wish I would be able to preach like open air every day. But there's this thing in Georgia called summer. Um, winter and summer, that's, that's the only two things that we really have here. And pollen. I don't know what season that is, but maybe all the time. But I would... I would advise you strongly to, to get outside, to get outside. There's just something about opening yourself up, your, your imagination, getting outside and just exploring God's creation. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just go outside. Go out there on, on a nice day and get a glass of lemonade or tea or whatever it is that you drink and just sit there and just enjoy God's creation and bring your Bible, a pen and a journal and just listen to God speak in the silence and solitude, because that's what that does. It creates an opportunity for you to hear from God because God wants to speak, believe it or not. And then the last one is the one that's most difficult. This one is I would just recommend that you spend three to four hours in silence. Now you may, you may go into this and with both guns blazing like, of course, I mean, I'm gonna nail this. But I'm telling you, you get about 20 minutes deep and you're going to find a million things you need to do. It really, I mean, all of a sudden you're going to start thinking about landscaping that you intentionally forgot five years ago. Like it's just going to happen. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult. But let me, tell you, let me just encourage you with this. It's going to be so good. 
It's going to be so good. Because not only is prayer speaking, but prayer is listening. And when you have times of silence and solitude, you're able to to talk to God and listen to God. I realize some of you are far from God and you're like, this sounds super, super spiritual. This actually is not for the spiritually elite. This is a promise to every person who calls himself a follower of Jesus. It's just a matter of being um, in living in the way of Jesus. I told you I would get to the word proving. We're here. The word proving is in verse 25. Uh, This particular rendering of proving means this. It means to bring means to bring or put together. This word can be translated a bunch of different ways. And it said that Saul, uh, he had baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ because what Saul was using is what their previous knowledge of the Bible. He was using some facts that they'd had so that they could have faith in Jesus. And I want you to have a couple practical ways as we're in the the final lap of this talk, some practical ways of us using this same word proving in other ways that's mentioned in the New Testament that we can prove or show to the watching world that we are indeed God's kids, that we are indeed not perfect, but we're honest, that we're indeed united even when it looks like on social media that everybody's divided. Because I do know this, the the more rough that the world gets to the cause of Christianity, the more rough it gets and the more our, our culture works in against Christianity, the more potent our message is gonna be. So let us, let us prove to the watching world we are who we say that we are and we're following Jesus. So the first uh, passage I want to show you in a literal and physical sense in Ephesians 4 and 6, we're gonna see this proving from him the whole body joined and held together, held is, is that same word, it's just, it's that Greek word used in a different sense. Held together by every supporting ligament, it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When the watching world looks at us as being followers of Jesus and they see that we're held together, even when everybody else seems to be ripping apart and it seems like there's so much racial divide and cultural divide and who's right and who's wrong, but yet when Christians are together and when we hold together, when we weather the storm, the watching world will look at us and say, wow, there's something about those Jesus people. They're a little weird, but there is something I like about them. It seems like they have a peace when everybody else is at chaos. It seems like there's this inner peace when the world seems like there's an inner turmoil. When we're held together by every supporting ligament and it grows and builds itself up in love. When we do this in a way that's loving to one another, we model to the world a better way of life. Jesus's way of life. Colossians 2.2 says this, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Saul, Paul, as what he would be called here in this particular passage, he's saying that as Christians, we're gonna show the watching world how we're united in love that we're united first and foremost around this, not just an idea, not just facts, but a faith, a belief and love of God. 
and also the love of people, not for people who are like us, maybe even for the people specifically who are not like us, that this idea of love is going to prove to the world that we are who we say that we are, not perfect, but honest. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 16, it gets into the mind. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is every follower of Jesus has the mind of Christ. So we've been informed by the spirit of God to have the mind of Christ. So we're not thinking like we used to think. We're not living like we used to live. And where we started is not where we're going to finish. Whom he may instruct him. You see, the way that we think, is, it also affects in what we believe. And what we believe also affects the way that we think. And the way that we think and the way that we believe instructs us in the way that we live. So the way that we live is going to be informed by those two things. And when we show ourselves as being united in love like, like the world is not, when we show that we are, we're held together in a tight bond, in Ephesians 4, it would, it would talk about this bond that we're, we're a people of, of one Lord and one baptism and one faith. Like when we're those kind of people, there's one God who's the father of all, who's over all and he's in all and living through all. Like when we model to the world that we are these kind of people, we're unstoppable. We're not making, we're not making noise. We're making a difference. Let's continue on in our main passage. I want to give you uh, the rest of this, starting in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, here's a transition. Remember, he was in Arabia, then Damascus, and now he's in Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul was on his journey and he had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Verse 28. So Saul stayed with him and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. That's Greek speaking Jews. I told you they were there, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear or the respect of the Lord. Again, a parallel passage here gives us a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on. We reference Galatians 1. I want to reference it again. Galatians 1, 18 through 20 says this about this particular time frame. Then after three years, so this is the three years of Arabia and Damascus. Now, fast forward three years. This is what Saul wrote. He says, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, who was the first among equals. He was the leader in the early church, fresh out of the, the resurrection. He was the one who, who had denied Jesus before the resurrection, after the resurrection. He's like, I'm your guy. He became the leader. So of course, Saul goes to talk to Peter because he's the leader of the early church and he stayed with him for 15 days. I don't know why that was essential, but 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. James would become the pastor in the, of the church in Jerusalem. Saul himself never pastored a church. 
I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. So again, he, he was beyond his credentials. He talked about what had happened in Arabia, what had happened in Damascus, and now what happened in Jerusalem. He says, I wanted to go in and it was dangerous because when, when you live a life that's surrendered to Jesus, you have to get beyond your own safety and there's always some risk involved. There's always some risk involved. So he doesn't stay where he started. Instead, Saul steps up in this moment and he, he saved people or sent people, right? So he now, he receives Jesus. He can spiritually see and now he's by the Holy Spirit leading. He's being led. He goes into Arabia so he can commune with God the Father. He goes into Damascus to share with these Greek-speaking and Aramaic-speaking people so the gospel can get out. And now he goes right back into into the place that he left, the same place that he was killing Christians or he was giving the approval to kill Christians. The same place that all of the, the early church would know of his reputation. But he goes back anyway and he talks to Peter and he talks to James. What I wanna leave with you is this. False Christianity is safe. And real Christianity is risky. False Christianity is safe. Safe people are sent people. You can't stay where you started. You have to leave. You have to leave that little place. If not, we'll just be making a bunch of noise and not making a difference. False Christianity is safe because ultimately it becomes about us as Christians. But real Christianity, the one that Jesus died for, the one that the Holy Spirit invites us into, the one that the, that the word of God tells us to venture into, this is the real Christianity and it's risky. Think of this, think, think of this for just a moment. Think of Saul, he could have stayed off and he could have gone into Damascus and dealt with the crowds there who had heard about his bad reputation, but he goes right back to Jerusalem, why? Because he wants to validate his salvation story and thankful that that Barnabas steps up as the peacemaker and helps to validate Saul's story with Peter, the early, basically the, the leader of the early church and with James who would become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem to verify, hey, we're all on the same side. But it wasn't easy. He risked his life by doing it because he didn't stay where he started. He didn't stay where he started. Where are you this morning? Are you the same place that God found you? Maybe for you, 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 you see this and you believe that God is leading you to maybe make a decision to even follow him for the first time. And you're like, nope, I'm not doing it. Still wrestling with control, still can't do it. Sure, I believe all the facts of the gospel. I get it. I get all the facts, but, but nope, I'm not, not gonna do it. I'm, just, I'm still gonna live life on my terms. What would happen if you said yes to Jesus? I can tell you some things I know that would happen your eyes would open up and you'd see things and experience things that you've never even thought possible because that's what Jesus does in the life of every person who surrenders to him, bar none. I know that would happen. Maybe for you, where you started in your faith, you've committed your life to Jesus and you're, you're right here and you're not serving, you're not doing, you're just, you're just hanging out. 
And you've been so stuck in this mindset, well, I just need to, I need to be with God before I do anything with God, and I'm just not good enough now, so I just have to continue to be with God, be with God, be with God. It's been 20 years. You've waited long enough, right? You've waited six months. It's been long enough. You've waited two weeks. It's been long enough. You've waited 30 years. It's been long enough. You've been saved for a week. You can do something for God right now, right now. You don't need to wait for Jesus to make you perfect. That's not going to happen until you go into heaven. Amen? You don't need to wait. But get this. Don't stay where you started. Don't stay where you started. Some of you, maybe you're, you, you're being brought to this point of obedience and you're like, I know I need to get the help that I need. I need to, I need to serve in this area. I need to apologize to this person. I need to finally disciple my kids. I don't know what it is that God is doing in this room, but what I do know is this, the other side of your yes lies incredible things, incredible things. So what's your step? What's your step? What do you need to do? What do you need to do? Who's gonna be affected by you obeying? Time will tell. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for the offer of salvation. We thank you, God, that all of your promises are yes and amen. That they're done. Being fulfilled. I thank you, Jesus, that you're not waiting for the, even the better version of us before we can start doing things for you. I thank you, Jesus, that that you found me at the age of 21. You set my heart free. You've been changing me ever since. And I thank you first and foremost that I am your son and I can call you father. What a promise for every Christian in the room is that we are your son and daughter. We're family. And we have a perfect father in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.